Hi, my name is Masha Gessen. I before we start <laughs> before we start off, I just want to say a couple of words about Penn. So I'm I'm going to speak in my capacity as a Penn trustee, and then we, we can speak about democracy. Uh, Penn, as you probably know, is an organization that uh, is devoted to both. Um, I'm sorry, it's for me. Okay, tell them I'll be right there. Uh, an organization devoted to freedom of expression and the value of literature. And we have, uh, I don't have my cheat sheet, but I think about 7,000 7, members. 7, is that members yeah. and, um, and Penn has really been mobilized and in a way rejuvenated by the 2016 election. We have expanded to uh, events and representation all over the country. We now have offices in Los Angeles, Washington DC, New York and Boston, is that correct? Um, well, yeah, that's right. And Boston. See, well, I not, not quite yet Boston. Not quite yet Boston. Yet time. Okay. <laughs> All right, the great city of Boston is waiting for, for, for Pen America's representation. And I've been on the board for four years, and I have to say it's one of the most meaningful things that I have done since moving back to this country. Uh, as a child of Eastern Europe, I really grew up with this sort of image of Penn as, as my shining city on the hill. Um, and it was an incredible honor to be asked to join when I, when I got here. And I hope you all consider joining as members uh, to contribute to the incredibly important work that Penn is doing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Masha. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to this event. Um, this event, um, it can't happen here. And it appears to be happening here. So never, no worries there. Um, this event is co-presented. Nope. No funny there either. Um, this event is co-presented with New York Review of Books and is part of the 2018 Penn World Voices Festival, an annual event that has been going now for 14 years. This year we present the festival under the theme Resist and Reimagine, and this event this afternoon is one of the keynote discussions of that theme. Thank you all again for being here. I'm Chip Raleigh, I'm the director of the festival, and I'm gonna be moderating the discussion. The more observant of you will notice that there is someone missing up here this afternoon. Sadly, Nancy McLean has been battling laryngitis for I think over a week now, and she was unable to travel to New York yesterday. She sends her deep regrets to the audience and to her fellow panelists. But the good news is, though, that is that we, we had and we still have an embarrassment of riches in terms of the lineup this afternoon. It's my pleasure now to introduce him to you. You've heard from Masha Gessen. She's the author, most recently, of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2017. Her other books include the international bestseller, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. She writes for numerous publications, including the New York Review of Books. But I want to say that I think one of the coolest things on her CV is that she provides translation for the television series, The Americans. Let's give it up for the Americans. I actually do not write for numerous publications. I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker. I think that's an old bio, but. Oh, okay, yeah. I was just gonna mention The New York Review of Books because they're our generous co-presenter at this panel, but yes, oh. <laughs> you're a staff writer at The New Yorker You still owe well. us a piece, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew this was going to get me in trouble, Chip. Speaking of which, Ian Baruma, to my immediate right, has been a frequent contributor to The New York Review of Books since 1985 and is the magazine's editor since September 2017. 
From 2003 to 2017, he was Professor of Human Rights, Democracy, and Journalism at Bard College. He's a fellow of the European Council of Foreign Relations and a board member of Human Rights in China and the author of too many books here to list for you. Next to him is Max Boot, who's a historian, best-selling author, and foreign policy analyst. He's the Jean J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. I'd like to see your business card after we're done here. Um, and a national security columnist for the Washington Post. He's the author, most recently, of The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale, and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. Now, the panel, uh, uh, we're going get to get the discussion rolling in a minute. And I just want to give you a little breakdown of how the session's going to run. We're going to talk for about an hour. Um, I want the panelists, I'll be throwing out some questions, but I want this to really kind of open up into a kind of a dinner table conversation. It's, it's, it's a dinner party without the dinner. A without food, the food fight. A food fight, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> um, that's better than being in furious agreement with each other on everything. But, but um, so like when if I ask Masha a question and Masha's answered it and you've got something to say, Max, hop in. Everyone hop in. Um, so we all know it Can't Happen Here is the title of the 1935 novel by Sinclair Lewis. And we also know that the term has very quickly become a kind of shorthand for our unease and our fears about what is happening to America under Donald Trump. We're going to address these fears and try to assess how realistic they are. And I'm going to start off with you, Ian. I think we should first talk about what the it is in It Can't Happen Here. Um, what do we fear is happening here or could happen here? Is it a degradation of our values, the collapse of our institutions? Is it the corruption of democratic processes or is it the defense of full-blown fascism? Well, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. I think oops, one thing that um, confuses um, us and, and many people is that, can you hear? D there's something weird with it. Okay. Um, one thing that is confusing is that a lot of the language uh, that is bandied about, not only in the United States, but in, in Europe too, uh, to anybody who knows a little bit of history, has very ugly echoes. Um, for example, uh, uh, direct attacks on the free press and calling them all uh, fake news and so on is a, a, an exact parallel to Nazi language in the 30s uh, about the Lügenpresse in, in, uh, in Germany, the lying press and so on. And because we hear so much of that kind of talk, um, the temptation is to think that history will repeat itself and that we will see a kind of... Um, reprise of fascism and Nazism as it happened in, in the 20s and 30s and 40s. That is, one hopes and, and I assume, unlikely. But um, I don't think that institutions in any country um, are uh, impregnable and uh, societies can change very fast. Uh, just think of the transition between President Obama and, and President Trump. And institutions are only so as, as strong as the people, people's will to defend them. And so what is possible is that we might go in a sort of direction of, uh, if, if everything uh, uh, goes badly, Trump gets a second term and so on, the direction of Viktor Orban, uh, possibly uh, Erdogan, a, fo a form of authoritarianism which does not immediately uh, involve concentration camps and brown shirts and so on. 
So, but that's uh, already enough, uh, I think, to fear. I would say that, you know, uh, Donald Trump has a uh, dictatorial personality. Now, I don't think it's it's right to compare him to somebody like, uh, you know, Hitler, because Hitler was, I would argue, uniquely evil. I think he's Trump is kind of a more garden variety dictatorial type, uh, more of a Mussolini, Perón, Chavez, Castro, uh, you name it. Uh, what a relief. Well, that's, 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 you know, to the extent that there's good news, that's, that's, that's the good news. That's actually only part of the good news, but there's actually somewhat better news, which is that, uh, you know, if Trump were actually taking power in, you know, interwar Italy or in 1950s Argentina, or in, in uh, Venezuela 20 years ago, or in, uh, you know, in, in Cuba in 1960, I think he would, he would become a full-blown dictator. Again, not a Hitler-level dictator, but like a common variety authoritarian ruler. Now, the, the good news is that he's not taking power in those countries that had very weak institutions that were very easy to usurp. He's taking power in one of the oldest and most stable constitutional uh, democracies in the world, and we have a very strong tradition of the rule of law. We have the Constitution. We have informal checks and balances. We have uh, the the you know the bureaucracy uh, in, in the executive branch. We have uh, the the free press. We have the judiciary. There are a lot of constraints on Donald Trump, and so that I think accounts for the fact that he's had only limited success in undermining and usurping our institutions, uh, which I'm sure he would be very happy to do if if he were free to do so. But you, you, nevertheless, even though we do have these checks and balances, but I think what we're seeing is that uh, a lot of what we've kind of, a lot of what's hemmed in previous presidents, what we're now realizing was not actually a formal legal constraint. It was kind of tradition and regulation and uh, you know, kind of commonly accepted notions of how presidents are supposed to behave. And Trump doesn't care. I mean, he's throwing it all out the window. I mean, for decades, for example, it's been assumed that anybody running for president has to release their tax returns. He didn't do that. He won. There's, you know, there's one small norm out the window. You know, for decades, uh, you know, certainly since Watergate, there have been very strict uh, you know, regulations on interfering with the Department of Justice, with the FBI, to try to preserve the independence of the law enforcement mechanism, and he's running roughshod over all those with the help, I'm sorry to say, of a lot of Republicans in Congress, just trying to destroy the independence of the FBI and the, and the DOJ because they're a threat to him personally. And so, you know, I certainly share Ian's unease, and I don't know where this is going to wind up if, if uh, you know, he serves out his full term, if he even wins another term, which is certainly not outside the realm of possibility. I mean, I think he's doing a lot to undermine uh, institutions that are mercifully very strong and much harder to undermine in our country than just about any other country, including countries like Hungary and Poland uh, that have very recent traditions of democracy. We have a very old tradition and very strong institutions, but nevertheless, Trump is taking a pretty good run at it. That's, um, um, I want to come back um, to those, the question of the strength of our institutions in a minute, but before we get to that, Masha, what, what for you is the it? Um, is there a possibility of fascism or authoritarianism or any of the other gradations that we might consider? Well, there's always that possibility. <laughs> and I think that that's, that's sort of a starting point um, because I think that what, um, what we're talking about is really how we exercise our imagination. Uh, and I think that one of the problems with the campaign 
the public reaction to the campaign in 2016, the media reaction to the campaign, was a failure of the imagination. Right? I mean, we sort of started out uh, believing, all of us, that Trump could never get elected. Uh, and this, was uh, this belief was particularly strong among journalists. Um, and that informed sort of the entire um, tenor of, cover of covering the campaign and discussing the campaign. Uh, but no, Trump is possible and Trump is it. Like, it is happening here. Uh, so what is the nature of the it then? Um, I, uh, I'm in agreement largely with what uh, Ian and Max said, although I think I am less calmed by the resilience of the institutions because we started out knowing that the institutions were relatively resilient, right? Uh, we started out knowing that this country has the oldest constitutional democracy. Uh, what, uh, but it takes time even in countries where institutions are weak. I mean, I spent 20 years covering Vladimir Putin and there was an amazing thing. There was a, during the first year of his presidency, he spent an entire year taking over a, an independent media company. It took that long because the courts were working. Uh, not well, but they were sort of kind of working and it actually you, the, the sort of it took a year to push the bureaucracy to the point where it would allow for a state takeover of an independent media company. Um, so I'm not, uh, I'm not at all uh, calmed by the fact that 15 months into the Trump administration, some institutions are existing. But I think my, um, my concern is more with sort of what it's doing to us culturally. And I would just point to a couple of things. I mean, and, and there, there are also things on the sort of, on the cusp between institutional, uh, institutions and culture. Um, the relationship between the executive branch and the media has been changed in some very significant ways. Um, among other things, the State Department, which, li uh, which lies in ruin, um, has basically fallen almost completely outside the purview of journalism because journalists no longer have access to the State Department and to the Secretary of State while, it was, uh, while Rex Tillerson was, was, was serving as the Secretary of State. This was a cultural norm that led to significant, I think, uh, had a significant sort of, uh, impact on institutions. Um, I'm especially concerned with what's going on with sort of the construction of the image of the immigrant, which is not new exactly, and a lot of what Trump is doing is, is not new, which is I think part of the problem with understanding what the it is, right? A lot of what Trump is doing is growing out of the American history since 9-11 uh, and cultural change that has taken place since then, but he amplifies it to such an extent that I think it changes its quality. And, um, and one of the things, of course, is, 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 is his trafficking in the fear of Muslims and in fear, the fear of, Muslim, uh, of immigrants in general. And that has uh, changed both the public conversation and, of course, the behavior of ICE and the real lived experience of so many millions of people in this country. Can I add something to that which hasn't been said yet? which may be a difference between the United States and, and even Hungary and Poland, which is that all we know that many human beings, wherever they are, whatever culture, whatever society, are prone, if they could, to um, behaving atrociously, to um, enormous levels of cruelty and violence and so on. And one of the, the marks of a civilized society is that those at the very top in the government keep a lid on that, those kind of impulses. Very bad things happen as soon as people are given license by people at the very top to give vent to those kind of impulses. 
And that is especially alarming in a country where there are so many guns. I just, I mean, I would just jump in and say, uh, you know, there's certainly never been a president like Donald Trump before. I think there have been historical figures in U.S. history that are somewhat similar, but they tend to be figures like Huey Long, Joe McCarthy, uh, George Wallace, who have never, uh, thankfully, achieved the presidency because the kind of that, that conspiracy mongering, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the stigmatization of minority groups, uh, the contempt for the rule of law, these are all, you know, kind of, I would say, Huey Long, Joe McCarthy, George Wallace type characteristics. And so now, you know, unfortunately, we're running this, this horrible historical experiment of seeing what happens when a figure like that actually achieves the, achieves the presidency, the highest office in the land. Isn't a part of the problem that um, if, we, if we are, that this is something that we're, we're not really going to know until it's too late? Um, that 10 years from now we'll be able to look back and see what these patterns were showing or see the, the things that, that, that might have led up to something. Isn't the problem that when you're in the moment it's much harder to see what's, what, 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 it's, what exactly is happening, how, how far institutions or norms are being eroded by the presence of somebody, by that genie being let out of the bottle, by that person ascending to the top. I mean, Huey Long didn't ascend to the presidency. Um, he was killed. Um, but this one did ascend to the presidency. What do you think, Masha? I think it's worse than that. I think that not only will we not know what's happened until uh, it's it, until much later, we won't know what didn't happen. Uh, we, you know, we don't. If we prevent disaster or we prevent a part of a disaster, we will never know what that disaster might have been. I mean, we are sort of in the state of not knowing, which is why we look to history to try to inform our understanding. Uh, it is looking to history, thinking in ways that, uh, you know, that assume that history will repeat itself is hugely imperfect, but it's the best tool we have for understanding what's happening there. Can we come up with a kind of checklist, like a, a authoritarian or fascist checklist, <laughs> so, it's a, so, so we can keep track? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm partly being facetious, but partly being serious. What, what are the things that would need to happen? And, and bear in mind, it won't happen the same way it happened in other countries exactly. This is a different country. It does have different institutions. It does have different culture and different history, different patterns of behavior. But if you were to put together a checklist of the things that were they to happen, you would really become concerned. What are they? I would imagine one would be the kind of rhetoric that we're getting from, 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 from Donald Trump regarding immigrants, regarding you know, the kind of nativist rhetoric, the um, America first rhetoric, the isolationism, um, the economic arguments that he's making, et cetera. What would some of the other things be? Um, so first of all, I, uh, I wouldn't accept either the term authoritarian or the term fascist for the, th the thing that I fear, because okay. I think uh, fascism just has been used so much that it's, I think it's lost all meaning, uh, although we can make a pact about what we use it to mean. Authoritarian, fortunately, is a much more specific term. It means something entirely different, right? It's it's basically an apolitical regime of uh, of, of, of single person or single group rule, in which the the population is apathetic and and demobilized. Trump is the opposite of that. Trump's instincts are actually totalitarian, right? Trump wants people out in the public square demonstrating their uh, their loyalty. I don't think that Trump is on, a way, on the way to establishing totalitarianism in the United States. I actually don't think that's possible, right? Um, but those are his instincts. 
And so he and he is following those instincts. So the, the, the word that I've been using is autocracy. Um, he really wants to be able to to rule by decree. It's his very basic understanding of power. He understands political power as the sort of raw thing that allows you to give orders. And he's always very surprised and confused when it doesn't work quite that way. <laughs> um, what we've been seeing is that it works that way more than we might have assumed, right? And um, and for example, the transgender ban in the military is a great example of that, right? He tweeted that he was about to ban transgender uh, service people. And the initial reaction uh, on the part of the media and a lot of the, 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 the pundits was, oh, um, you can't actually ban transgender people in the military by tweet. Well, actually, as it turns out, you can. Uh, and then, and then the, the, the Defense Department sort of dragged his heels and then, uh, and then there was a lawsuit that, that stopped part of that ban, but now it's been going into effect, right? And, um, uh, and so we s that's an example of the, of, of, of the, the resistance of norms more than institutions in this particular case. Um, but ultimately his deep-seated belief, belief that he can actually rule by tweet uh, and rule by gesture, right? And I use the word rule advisedly rather than govern. Um, his instinct proves, that it proves to right in more cases than we would have thought, and that scares me. I think the, the good news about Trump uh, is that he is a dope. Uh, so if you had somebody who had the same authoritarian instincts as he has, but were actually smarter and more focused, let's say a Steve Bannon type who's actually read books uh, and uh, you know is much more of a systematic thinker, uh, somebody like that, I think, would be much more dangerous. And so I'm actually very worried about, you know, Trump 2.0 down the road, who's actually much more effective in implementing this agenda, whereas, in fact, Trump himself is so scatterbrained. I mean, he's like a hyperactive eight-year-old boy uh, that he actually drives people like Bannon to distraction because he can't stay focused on anything long enough. And, you, I mean, you see that even when he's talking. He can't stay on one subject for the length of a sentence, right? So he's jumping all over the place. So in some ways, that's kind of to the extent that there's a saving grace with him, it's, it's that uh, he knows so little and is so ineffective at actually moving the gears of government. Uh, the, what, what makes him very much more worrisome and more than simply a buffoon or a clown, I think, is that he is actually a very good salesman or, or uh, if you prefer, a con artist. He's actually very, very good at communicating, even though you know the actual quality of his ideas, again, would you know uh, you know embarrasses my elementary school age kids? Nevertheless, he is very. I mean, he's done a tremendous job of 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 grabbing the attention of the American public, including our attention. I mean, this is this is actually the one thing that I think he wants most in the world. I mean, I think Masha is right. He does want to be obeyed, but I think even more than want to be obeyed, he wants to be the center of attention, and that's the one thing that he is that he is incredibly successful at doing is he's hijacked the debate. And you know, people sometimes say, you know, people who are sympathetic to Trump on the Republican Party types, institutional types, sometimes say, you know, why can't he just get out of his own way? You know, things are going fine on the economy or whatever. Why can't he just shut up, stop tweeting? He would get a lot more credit. His approval ratings would go up. And that's actually true, I think, as a matter of strategy. And again, if you were actually smarter, he might, and, and more calculating, he might do that. But that, uh, uh, what's standing in the way of that is his actual agenda is not to achieve policy outcome X, Y, or Z. His actual agenda is to be the center of the attention of the world. He wants 
I mean, he's an, he's an egomaniac, he's a narcissist, he wants everybody intently focused on him, and he certainly achieved that agenda. Uh, again, often in, in ways that undercut uh, any attempt to actually achieve what, what, he is suppo what he is supposedly in favor of policy-wise, or to even get obedience uh, you know, from, uh, from, uh, from the government. And he often undercuts himself. I mean, for example, he probably would have gotten away with firing Comey and not had a special counsel uh, appointed if two days later he didn't tell Lester Holt on NBC News that he got rid of Comey to stop the investigation of the Russia thing. I mean, there are, we've had presidents who've tried to obstruct justice before. He's the first one who's bragged about it on national TV. So again, if he were just a little bit smarter and more calculating and keep, just keep his mouth shut occasionally, he would actually be a much more fearsome figure. He just he he often undercuts himself in ways that pander uh, to his egomania, but undercut uh, his his attempt to to achieve what he is ostensibly trying to achieve. But I think, sorry, no, just, uh, I'm not, I don't entirely agree with Masha. I, I don't think he has totalitarian instincts because for that you'd have to have a, a firm ideology which you want to impose on everybody which has to be publicly acclaimed all the time. I don't think that's what he wants. I think he's, it, it's more, he thinks more like a, like a, like a gangster, like a mafia don and his sense of loyalty and so on um, uh, is like that. And I think if you keep out of his way, he, he doesn't care whether you publicly stand up for him or not. If you stay out of his way and if you do him favors, you'll even get rewarded for it. So I think that's not so much the danger. I think that the, the, uh, what is already going on, and um, Max and I were talking about this earlier uh, while we were waiting, is that all three of us uh, come from elsewhere. Masha and Max come from country from from Russia uh, or the Soviet Union. Uh, know what from Russia with love. Russia with love. <laughs> know what it is like to live under a, a, by at that stage probably it's most accurate to say an authoritarian regime rather than a totalitarian one. And America represented something. I grew up in the Netherlands, first post-war gen generation in the shadow of the war, and with the. I don't want to call it an illusion. We, we, people of my generation felt very strongly that even if everything goes wrong in the world, there's always America and Britain where you, you're, you're going to be safe. These are open societies uh, with liberal institutions. You're not going to be harmed. And I think what is, what is happening is that many people in this country no longer feel that. And the knock on the door at midnight with everybody else looking the other way is real for a lot of people who don't have the right papers but whose children are Americans uh, and so on. Overt threats against the press. People are not yet getting arrested, but you can't be sure anymore So, uh, so if this goes any further. So I think the, the lack of, of, uh, of feeling safe as the citizen of a democracy is something that uh, is not waiting to happen or might happen. I think it already has happened. And I, I will say that I think this whole experience has been, uh, you know, deeply disillusioning to me on many levels. A, as a somebody who was a lifelong Republican up until the day after the last election, certainly very disillusioning to me about the Republican Party and, and my former fellow travelers and the conservative movement, but also, you know, just very disillusioning to me as an American because, as Ian said, uh, I am not from around these parts. Uh, I was you know, six years old when I came here in, in 1976 with my parents from the Soviet Union, and I grew up with kind of an idealized image of the United States, I think, as the last best hope of mankind, and 
you know, I certainly ascribe to Tom Wolfe's quip about how the dark night of fascism is always falling in the United States, but always landing somewhere else. And now I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I did think that America was, was, was pretty immune to these kinds of rabid nationalist, populist, racist, uh, xenophobic, reactionary type movements that you have seen so much of uh, in, in, uh, in Europe, for example, over, over, this, over the uh, course of their history. And, you know, now I, I just don't have any confidence in American exceptionalism in that regard anymore. And uh, so it's been, you know, it's, it's been, uh, I, I would say, a pretty disheartening process for me. Maybe it's, maybe, I guess the, the good news, if you want to see it, is I've kind of shed my naivete, I suppose, about America, and I'm, I'm perhaps gaining a more realistic appreciation for, uh, for the faults as well as the, uh, the strengths of this country. But I, it certainly uh, made me rethink uh, again, not just the Republican Party, not just conservatism, but really America. The fact that we could elect a guy like this really says a lot about this country, and none of it is good. Masha, what do you think about what um, Max said earlier, that um, we're saved to some extent by the fact that Donald Trump is a dope? Is that going to save us? Um, well, I, I, I've written about this, and um, you know, I actually am convinced that a lot of these guys are dopes. Um, historians have made them look a lot more organized and consistent than they were in reality if you uh, and and I would even uh, for that reason pick a little bit of a fight with Ian uh, about the sort of the, the role of ideology in uh, totali in totalitarianism I think it is exaggerated in hindsight as particularly exaggerated by historians by for all sorts of reasons including that historians work with text, and text emphasizes ideology. But, um, uh, which is not to say that, that every single uh, totalitarian leader or dictator has been quite as incompetent and stupid as Trump. I think he is really outstanding in that way. But, um, but I'm also... Only the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I actually think it, it is a common trait. This, 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 this simplicity and this incompetence is actually a common trait of dictators. Um, and I think that his sincere rejection of complexity is part of what drives him and what par part of what drives his politics and part of what his voters found so appealing about him. That is, you know, I don't think it's, it's, it's a saving grace. I think it's part of the danger. And that's deliberate? Do you think it's innate? It's I mean, integral it to who he is. No, but I mean, in terms of in terms of political strategy, I mean, this is this is what uh, previous dictators who have risen to power through a democratic system that then got thwarted did so by offering a very simplistic solution Absolutely. to very complex problems. Absolutely, okay. this is it's a rejection. In a way, it's a rejection of modernity. Uh, it's 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 a rejection of complicated understandings in, co in a complicated life. It's a pr the promise of re a return to an imaginary past that was simple and comfortable. Can I say something about books? Books are actually very important <laughs> because... No. One <laughs> this is a writer's festival. We no don't no agree. <laughs> one of the marks of, of uh, certainly communist dictators, less so the fascists and, and, and the, um, uh, the Nazis, even though Mein Kampf, of course, played a big role as a book, um, but one of the marks of, of communist dictators was precisely books. Every communist dictator, including Xi Jinping, left behind uh, a library of books that, of course, they didn't themselves usually write, but nonetheless a, li a library of books 
full of um, their thoughts. And their thoughts are unbelievably boring, so very few people would ever have read those books. But in some ways, I think that was part of their um, control. Um, th the fact that they all make very, 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 very long speeches. I mean, Chavez was the, the, that you intend intentionally bore a captive audience is a sign of your power. And the, the control of these, this, this type of dicta dictator is very much about forcing people to um, openly say that white is black because the leadership has said that. And I don't think there's any sign of that really in Trump. I mean, there I are, I there are actually, I think there are actually signs uh, of it. For example, I was very struck by, I think it was about a month ago, when he was talking at a rally, political rally, I forget, somewhere in the South, about uh, the meeting that he had with Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, where he was actually bragging about the fact that you know Trudeau mentioned to him, honestly, truthfully, and accurately, that Canada does not have a trade surplus with the United States, and Trump insisted, yes, it does, and then he admitted, I actually don't know if it has a trade surplus or not. I just said that, uh, but he's, but then he's bragging about the fact that he said it without knowing, and then. Furthermore, he got aides, I guess, to gin up some kind of figure for him to claim that, yes, Canada does have a trade surplus with us, even though if you actually look on the website of his own U.S. trade representative, no, actually Canada has a trade deficit with the United States, but he would not admit the point, and he sent you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders out to the White House podium to do a, a full spicer, basically, to, to say... <laughs> Uh, to say, no, the president is absolutely right. There's these other figures, you know, we have basically essentially uh, alternative facts exist to support what, what, what Trump is saying. And I thought that was actually a fairly chilling moment because he was actually bragging about the fact is, I don't care what the facts are. The facts are whatever I tell you they are. And there's a huge, you know, about 40% of the American public basically salutes and marches when he tells them what the facts are. And of course, that began um, under a government that you still actively supported. Because it was under George W. Bush that I think Karl Rove said, reality is what we make of it. I mean, that may have been the case, but I don't <laughs> think that, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I've never seen a previous American, I think what, what the, one of the interesting things that sets Trump apart from other previous presidents is, okay, all presidents lie to some extent, right? Uh, but normally if they're caught in a blatant lie, they have to correct it or walk it back or issue some kind of clarification. Whereas Trump just ignores any attempts to correct him in a way that no previous president has done. And he repeats the same lies over and over again. For example, it doesn't matter how many times you can read stories about the fact that he lost the popular vote. He still insists he won the popular vote. And you know he's ramming that lie down the throats of his followers, and they're basically swallowing it. And, and there's a number, there's many other examples of that. So I think this goes well beyond I mean, you could, you could have had your political, just please don't equate Trump with somebody like George W. Bush or previous Republican presidents you may have had a disagreement with. Okay, I actually voted for those, uh, for those guys. I you know, worked as a foreign policy advisor for, uh, for candidates like John McCain and, and Mitt Romney. You can have policy disagreements with all you want, but you have to acknowledge there is a qualitative difference between people like them and somebody like Donald Trump. This is not a question of I disagree with them on policy X, Y, and Z. This is an unrelenting, unremitting assault on the norms of our democracy, on the very foundation of our country. That is, whatever you may say about George W. Bush, and I, th I agree, he made a lot of mistakes, 
but he was not trying to undermine the very basis of our democracy. No, I don't uh, disagree, but, but my, my point is not uh, to criticize George W. Bush's policies. It's this idea that reality is what we, what we say it is. And there, I think, there's a real parallel with Trump. And again, that's not quite the same thing as having an ideology expressed in, in reams of books that people then have to learn at school and, and, and parrot. I mean, with the, the, I think there is a difference between that, on the one hand, and lying and then covering up the lie and then lying again to make the lie more plausible and so on, which is all revolting, but it's not quite the same exercise as, as what Lenin and Mao and, 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 and Stalin and so did. The art of the deal is not on the curriculum yet. <laughs> Some, actually, just I wait. I, uh, I disagree with that description. Uh, I mean, I, 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 obviously there's a distinction, but I disagree with the description of Trump as lying and then lying again, uh, relying the lie to make it uh, more plausible. In fact, he does the opposite of that, and that's, why, uh, that's what makes his lies unusual, right? The normal political lie is, in fact, relied consistently to, uh, or constantly to, to, to sort of land better in, in a particular situation. Trump sticks to his lies um, and in doing so, asserts his right to say whatever the fuck he wants, whenever the, the hell he wants to. Uh, and that's, that's, uh, that's more of a bully tactic than, um, uh, than necessarily a political strategy. But now that he's president, it becomes a political strategy. And I think it is, it is a close cousin of the totalitarian sort of implantation of ideology that, uh, and, and, and forcing people to, to say that black is white. It is not the same thing, right? But it's, but it's more closely related to that than it is related to your normal garden variety political in the, life. In the sense of undermining the whole idea of truth. That, that, that I agree with. And I think another factor worth bringing out, which is maybe obvious but needs to be mentioned, uh, is you know, the Fox News Channel and lesser uh, sources of propaganda and misinformation like Breitbart and Infowars and uh, the Drudge Report and many others because I don't think any pre there's there's I mean, this is the kind of you know state propaganda organs that certainly actual dictators have had in other countries, but no American president has ever had before. Uh, you know, it was I mean, Fox News didn't even exist until 1996, and it did not become the number one cable channel until uh, the early 2000s. And now it's achieved this position of preeminence, where for you know 30 to 40 percent of the population, the truth is whatever Fox and tells them it is, and and Fox will tell them it is whatever Donald Trump says it is, although the, the, it also works the other way because Donald Trump will also say reality is whatever Fox says, so there's a complex <laughs> feedback mechanism between them because, uh, you know, and I've often said that Fox is, is, is Donald Trump's RT, Russia Today. Uh, not quite right because I think actually Putin is smart enough not to believe everything that's on RT, whereas <laughs> uh, Trump actually does believe everything that's on Fox, so, you know, when Fox... Uh, starts uh, screaming in, in a panic because there is a caravan about to invade the United States from Mexico, which on closer examination consists of like a thousand poor, bedraggled Central American refugees. Donald Trump faithfully, you know, echoes that nativist hysteria about, oh no, we're about, you know, the, the barbarians at the gates, they're about to overrun us, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but again, I don't, no previous American president has ever had that kind of propaganda instrument at his disposal, and I think that makes Trump a, a much greater danger than somebody like Richard Nixon, who was trying to propagate his lies in the face of unrelenting hostility from the media. And there, no question that Trump still is met with a very hostile reception in the mainstream media, but now there, there's this 
alternative media that feeds his, uh, his alternative view of reality. Um, I'm just going to shift gears a little here. Um, I mean, the thing that fascinates me about, well, one of the things that fascinates me about Trump is that I, I, the election was probably his, his peak performance in terms of, of, of polling, and it was only 46.1%. You'd mentioned earlier that he didn't win the, win the popular vote. And it's never, I don't, I don't think any polling that he's had has all those surmounted that. All those polls lie. He's actually has 60% <laughs> support, according to Donald Trump. But according to the polls, um, but, the but according, news but polls, according to mean. the polls, he doesn't, and yet he is president. And he's president perhaps because of a, a, an electoral college gerrymander or, I mean, any other number of, of factors that might have played in um, to him winning the electoral college or to, or to, to, to becoming president. Um, don't dictators need to be doing a little bit better than that? I mean, we're impressed by the way that he maintains support with his base and maintains around 40 to 44 percent support but at some point isn't he doesn't he need to have more popular appeal for him to be a a really truly incredible threat but one of the definitions of a dictatorship is that you never know how popular the dictator is because there's no <coughs> way of uh, the free way that people can express themselves on the matter so you, there's no, you can't say how many uh, people in China supported Mao in, let's say, the, the late 60s, because there was no way for them to express it. I mean, I think Gary Kasparov made a good point in light of, you know, there was a poll that came out just this week showing that, you know, a majority of Republicans think that the FBI is biased against Trump because, of course, this has been the propaganda line from Fox and from Trump and Devin Nunes, et cetera. And, I mean, it's striking the success to which he has been able to brainwash, you know, probably 40% of the population with control, basically, of only one major network. And, and the point that Gary made was, you know, uh, why is anybody surprised to see that somebody like Putin is ostensibly as popular as he is when he controls every single uh, means of communication with his public? And even then, as, as Ian suggests, we, it's hard, you, you can't really do independent polling in a place like Putin's Russia, but nevertheless, he probably does have a fairly high degree of support just because, you know, he has the, 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 the means to brainwash uh, much of the population. And Trump has much lesser means, but he is still brainwashing a fairly substantial set of the population. Duterte is popular in the Philippines. Um, Putin, you'd have to say, as you, as you just said, you know, we obviously can't rely on polls. But Masha, you've written in, in, in your most recent book about his popularity that, that he didn't just emerge um, it, it wasn't as if nobody wanted him. Well, I mean, that's, 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 that's a tricky argument to make because, again, uh, you know, the, the political machine was rigged to, to install Putin from the beginning, and he really did emerge from nowhere. But um, not only does he control all the media, he has also annihilated all political opposition. So it's, um, you know, it's not like you can support someone else other than Putin. That someone else is absent from the public sphere, which in itself <laughs> is basically absent. Um, it would take a long time for us to get to a place like that here. Um, so, in that sense, you know, we're not. We, there will be no direct parallels between uh, the, the Russia and the United States, or, or the United States even in Hungary or, or, or Poland. Although I'd look really closely at Poland and look at how rapidly that democracy has been reversed in just a year, and, and how, much, how much damage can be done to a country that's, that's a member of the European Union and, and, that, and that seems to have 
at least well-designed institutions, if not particularly strong institutions. But I think there's but a difference in, in, in public support. You can see why Putin would be popular amongst many Russians, because he, he, he emerged uh, in a period of, of enormous crisis, the sense of humiliation, disorder, and so on. And he seems to stand for order, pride, uh, we're back again, and we won't be f pushed I around. I, I disagree, actually. Well, he, he, he okay. emerged at a time uh, of, of uh, unprecedented economic growth, of actually sort of restored stability. He emerged at a time when all the indicators were that finally sort of things, uh, the crisis had been resolved. He trafficked very successfully in the already established sense of imminent, imminent danger, and he managed to amplify it. That's exactly what Trump does. Yeah, but did most many Russians believe that? Which, are, according to interviews and so on, they do seem to. I mean, you could say the same thing about the, the rise of the Nazi party, because you could say that by 1933, mm -hmm. the, 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 the economic crisis and so on had been, uh, was at least on its way to being resolved, and, and things weren't all that bad. But people were easily convinced that uh, here f finally was the man who was going to stand up for us and so on and so forth. Whereas my point was going to be that uh, those circumstances do not really exist here. Uh, this is not a country where th th people feel, um, some people do, and that does explain part of his base, but the majority feels that America has been deeply humiliated and that um, there's chaos and I mean finally I there's a savior. Yeah, I mean I, I would I mean, I would certainly agree with you because I don't think you know, if you look at, at past dictators arising, normally it, it has happened in a, in a sense of, of greater crisis, whether economic or military defeat or what have you, which is not quite the case here. But, I mean, I think what we've seen now, and, and you alluded to this, you know, with what you just said, is, I mean, that there is a sense among Trump's white, working-class, uneducated base that they are facing an existential crisis. And the, I would argue the essential existential crisis that they think they are facing is the fact that white people are going to be a minority in America by 2042. And this is a, a, a demographic shift with massive uh, implications for the politics of our country. And I think that you know we tended to overlook the extent to which this was causing near panic among uh, you know this, this, this working class white constituency that, that Trump has has tapped into with his, you know, frankly, racist, nativist uh, appeals. And I think there, there is that. And of course, you know, we know we've, we've been fed all the stories ad nauseum about, you know, the economic crisis and the Rust Belt and, you know, people out of work and the opioid crisis and all that. I mean, all that is real, but I think there is also just this larger sense of, of you, you, know, you constantly hear interviews with Trump voters that it's not my country, I don't recognize it anymore, things have shifted. So, I mean, it really is it does feel like this kind of white nationalist revolt against uh, multicultural America. And not, not all white powers threatening America from the outside, China, uh, Iran. Right. Uh, and also Korea. from the outside that, you know, you have all these swarthy immigrants, Mexicans and Muslims who are invading our shores and, and changing the composition of the America we love. I mean, I think that's kind of the quintessential Trump voter mindset that he's tapping into so successfully. I think there's more to it than that. I think there's a much larger number of people in this country who have now for many years lived with a constant daily sense of economic insecurity. And 
you, know, you can't discount that. And I think that that, uh, that number far exceeds the number of people who are discomfited by a more diverse America. And, um, and, the, and, and sort of the, the, the more diverse America and the social change that we have witnessed over the last generation actually j contributes to that fundamental sense of insecurity. And I, but I, I don't think it's it's actually the primary cause. And I think and I think that uh, I mean we, we can't uh, resolve this argument, right? But um, but I it seems to me that a, that a productive way to analyze it is to look at just the the, the state uh, pervasive state and pervasive sense of economic insecurity in this country, and how easy it is to to sort of traffic in the accumulated resentment of that. In that sense, it's not actually dissimilar, right? That that sense of accumulated resentment and that sense of, of extreme uncertainty is not dissimilar from from interbellum uh, Germany uh, or late 1990s. Russia and one last thing that I want to say about that is that again we're looking at the Russia in the late 1990s from the vantage point of 2018 when the myth of uh, of extremist uh, instability has been so solidly established. But then we have to ask the question: When did uh, the American myth stop working? Because if you uh, read conservative columnists, I mean even mainstream ones, not not Trump supporters, um, Brooks, people like that. That, that what you're always told is that, yes, there's a lot of economic insecurity in, in American society, but that gives this society its dynamism, its vibrancy, its energy, and so on, and that's the way it always has been here. And in some ways, that's true, because the, the reason people put up with it was because they always believe, well, if you just work hard enough, at least your kids will be able to get ahead. And so there was less resentment of those who were better off than you were than it was usually true in most European societies. Now, at uh, what, what point do you think, this is my question, I'm not, this is not a polemical point, but at what point do you think enough people stopped believing in that, that it actually laid the, the ground for America? Well, again, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think economic insecurity uh, contributed uh, to Trump's success, but I don't think it was the dominant factor because, I mean, if you look at who was voting for whom, the lowest income voters were actually voting for Hillary Clinton. They were not supporting Donald Trump. So the people who were supporting him were somewhat higher on the social economic stratum, and I think their defining characteristic is they were white. Uh, they were white people uh, who were uh, very resentful of of people with with darker colored skins. I think that's that. I mean, yes, economic insecurity taps into it, and yes, there is some level of economic insecurity which they are then able to scapegoat immigrants and free trade and freeloading allies and you know the general changes in society that they don't like. That's all true, but I think. Uh, that uh, it's it's really that that again I, I I really think it's the it's the power of white nationalism that Trump has tapped into. But the people who put him over the top in Wisconsin and in Rust Belt cities had voted for Obama before, <coughs> so it must have been a seri an important factor there. And also, I I think that it's it's a mistake to equate uh, poverty and economic insecurity. People who live in poverty are not actually living with economic insecurity. They're living in poverty. People who are living with profound economic insecurity are people who are afraid of losing their status and afraid that their children are not going to be better off. And there was an interesting study, I can't remember now, who, 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 did it, who looked at, the, at Trump voters in context, right? So it, while it's true that his voters on average had a higher, uh, had higher income than Clinton voters, a lot of them came from uh, areas with no economic mobility and no social mobility, 
right? And I think that that's, that's a much more important factor, and I think that that goes some way to answering your question, Ian. Um, I think that the, we dated back to the erosion of the middle class. We dated back to, uh, to the last time that children were better off than their parents. Now, we're t uh, and, and in a sense, Max is absolutely right as well. We're talking about the white middle class. Right? Uh, Non-white people in this country haven't been accustomed to the system working for them. Uh, and so the nature of, the, of, 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 of their relationship to the system is different. But we're talking about people for whom the system worked and then stopped, right? And they have had the experience over the course of several elections of voting their pocketbook, voting rationally, and not getting, uh, not becoming any better off. In fact, become uh, starting to feel more and more insecure. And the temptation to then throw a grenade at the system rests with those people, people who expect the system to work for them, and it won't. We started off um, this conversation with some fairly strong statements about the robustness of the institutions that might protect us. And I want to challenge each of you on that, um, whether our institutions are really that robust. Does Congress, for instance, seem to be functional at this moment? I mean, how, wh what is Congress able to do, um, for instance, um, not, not even, uh, McConnell's not even willing to um, put up to a vote um, legislation that would protect Robert Mueller's position? Um, aren't there some significant um, erosions both in you know, that arm of government and in other institutions? Start off with you, Max. Uh, I mean, there's no question that uh, the congressional Republicans have been a disgrace, which is why uh, you know, my view is that uh, you know, basically uh, every single Republican in America deserves to be voted out of office. Uh, and I say that as a former Republican myself. Uh, but and while, you know, and there's certainly gradations of awfulness among Republicans, and, and some have been less awful than others, and quite a few have been very anguished in private, as I know from, from personal experience, but nevertheless, uh, they've been fundamentally unwilling to stand up to Trump because he is so popular with their voters, and therefore, I think the only way you can restore a sense of checks and balances uh, within our uh, legislative branch is to, uh, you know, defeat every freaking Republican in November. Um, and, you know, have a Congress that is more willing to stand up to, to Donald Trump. And I think what's been happening uh, in the House, I think, has been a particular disgrace because I would say that the Senate uh, has been kind of more a bystander than anything else to Trump's assault on the rule of law, whereas the House uh, has really been uh, an enabler of it and a, uh, a co-conspirator in, in attempting to obstruct justice, especially with uh, Devin Nunes. Uh, who uh, deserves basically to be censured by his colleagues, much as Joe McCarthy was, and it's you know it's disgraceful that Paul Ryan, somebody I used to admire, has the power to remove Devin Nunes from his chairmanship of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, which he has turned into a joke, and more than a joke really, because it's become a very insidious institution, which is mounting an unrelenting assault on the FBI, the rule of law, and the Department of Justice at the behest of Donald Trump and the Republican leadership is allowing him to get away with it. And this is something that I think, uh, this is a, a, uh, an outrage that uh, will, will dog people like Paul Ryan as long as they live. Masha, how did we get to that? How did, this didn't just happen in 2016, this, this kind of, the kind of uh, deterioration that Max is 
laid out for us there. How did we get to that? We had some argument before about how bad Bush was <laughs> before um, uh, and, and, and how far um, maybe the, the Republican Party had gone before. But this is, I imagine, do you think this is something that's been going on for a while? Um, how yeah, did we, how did we get a, to the point? This is a great, great sort of last you know, uh, answer this in two minutes question. Um, you know, I think there are many stories that can be written or told about this, and I think they're all useful. There is a story about Trump creating an entirely new situation in this country, and I think you know, that story is true. Um, the story that, I, uh, that is most important and useful to me is the story of the, the profound change that has happened here since 9-11. You know, the, we have been in a forever war since 9-11, uh, being in a forever war, um, in a war that is by definition a forever war, right? It's a war against an emotion, against a phenomenon. It's a war without an objective. Um, th that has such a corrosive uh, influence on both culture and institutions that I think it has a direct relationship to how we got Trump and took this, you know, if, if Trump is a leap, then we took it from a running start that began on 9-11. And I think there are other stories to be told as well, right? I mean, there are many, it, many stories that go deeper into history that, that contribute to this understanding, but you know, the story I would tell is from, it starts with 9-11. I mean, I think it, it goes well beyond 9-11. I'm actually grappling with a lot of these issues because I'm actually writing a, a short book for the fall called Corrosion of a Conservative, which is you know, uh, in, in part a personal memoir of how I became a conservative and how I became disenchanted with the movement. But it's also forcing me to grapple with the history of American conservatism. And you know, all these trends have been there since, since the start. I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, I mean, the modern conservative movement was really born in the 50s and 60s from a combination of kind of uh, Robert Taft Midwestern isolationists and Strom Thurmond-style Southern segregationists. I mean, that's really the root of the movement. And you know, I think a lot of the more objectionable uh, people were suppressed into silence by people like William F. Buckley at a time when we still had gatekeepers, but now the gatekeepers are gone in this age of the internet and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, democratization of information, the spread of misinformation on, on platforms like Facebook and so forth. And so I think what you're seeing is that all of these horrible sentiments which were laying dormant or that people only appealed to with dog whistles in the past, now Trump is wolf whistling at them. And you know, they're, they're rising up out of the sewers and, and making clear uh, that they've never actually left, that, that they had main, mainly been silenced by you know, previous Republican standard bearers, you know, decent individuals like Mitt Romney or John McCain or uh, the George Bushes or Ronald Reagan or others uh, who may have sometimes appealed to those dark sentiments uh, in, in the course of winning elections, but generally you know, tried to suppress them and now Trump is, is summoning them, and, and they feel like they can come out in the open in the way they could not before. Well, I, I wonder if that's entirely true. I mean, I agree with you. If, if you're right, and I, I think you are to a large extent right, that there is a sort of white existential angst of being uh, surpassed by people of color and so on, then you really have to go back much further than 9-11. Um, you have to go back to the civil rights movement and the split in the uh, Democratic Party and the Dixocrats and so on. And that's why I was saying, I mean, no, that's, I know, that's the modern Republican movement is, is taking the Southern segregationists away from the Democratic Party. Yeah, but to say that uh, Ronald Reagan and, uh, or, or Richard Nixon, who of course was a pinko compared to the right-wing Republicans today, but to say that they sometimes paid, did some paid lip service to it for, to get elected is 
perhaps putting it a little bit mildly, because I think Nixon uh, was the first to hardly dog whistle. I mean, it was pretty overt, this playing on the fears of people, especially in the South, that after civil rights movement, um, they were being threatened and so on. And that's when people started moving into the mega churches and, and, and the, the Christian right was formed and so on. And so it really goes back to the, oh it goes back further and it goes probably goes back to Cleopatra's nose. <laughs> but if we just keep it in perspective, it certainly no, no, goes back no, to no. those days. No, no, I, I completely agree with that. But I think what happened before is that you would have candidates like Nixon or, or Reagan or, or Bush with, you know, remember the Willie Horton ad and all this kind of stuff. They would basically dog whistle in the, in the racist direction when it came time to win votes, but then they would not actually govern uh, in that way. And, and, and the way they would, they would tend to govern would be much more moderate. And in fact, so you had this widening division between the kind of actual sentiments of the Republican base and what Republican leaders were actually delivering. And so that led to the Tea Party narrative and the one that Donald Trump has tapped into is that everybody else has betrayed you, nobody else has your interest at heart, everybody else. And this is also a very old narrative that goes back to the John Birch Society the, and the, that this conspiratorial uh, East Coast uh, international banker slash Jewish elite has hijacked the spirit of true republicanism and prevented you know, your earnest desires from being uh, implemented and therefore we have to rise up, throw out the elite and you know, implement the, the, the kind of 100 proof uh, conservative agenda here. And I think that's, that's kind of what, is, what has led to Trump. And I think a lot of decades basically of divergence between what Republican presidents do in office and kind of the sentiments that Republican voters actually were trying to express at the ballot box. Now we might have just a few a chance for just a couple of questions, and the people um, just to tell you how we're going to do this. There's a microphone set up midway there. It should be illuminated. It's kind of illuminated. You can see it. Um, but two rules: one, it's really succinct, and two, it's a question. <laughs> and your fellow audience members will love you for it. Um, but before I go to your, could just, if you could just wait there patiently, before we go to that question, I want to ask one final question to the panel. Is, um, it's a it was a question, it was actually the, the name of another panel we had in this session in a different context. Where do we go from here? What can we do? Um, we've, we've enumerated a number of problems. Um, what can we do about it? How do we prevent Trump 2.0? Um, leave the rascals leave. out. Yes. Sorry. Vote the rascals out. Yes, and, and for all of you here in the audience, please leave New York and move to other states and vote there. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I, this is, this is a, a writer's festival, as, as I've been reminded, but books are important. And I think that uh, as writers, we really need to be, uh, I mean, I think it's the exercise of diagnosing what's, what's happened and what's happening is very important. I'm much more interested in the exercise of the imagination and, uh, and uh, in creating stories about what happens after. I think the imaginary past triumphs in the absence of the vision of a glorious future. And I don't see a single politician on the national stage. There, I do see politicians locally um, uh, or a single writer on the national stage who is offering some vision of a glorious future. We might return. We might return to that to that in a, in a minute. But let's take our first question. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Teresa Hummel, and my question. Let me ask a full question. 
you, you seem to be up, up above looking at some details of election administration in this country. The international standard for election legitimacy is that ordinary people can observe the handling of votes in a county and its production of tallies, such as in Germany. And in this country, um, since we got electronic voting, nobody can see how the votes are being counted. And it, it's quite depressing since I was an election integrity activist for six years and strive to work with you guys and inform you that nobody would look at who is counting the votes. I think Stalin is credited with saying, it's not who votes but counts, it's who counts the votes. So you, you accept the idea that Trump somehow won, but do you read the Washington Post? It seems that uh, Trump won uh, Michigan by 10,000 votes. There were $75,000 worth of votes for president. Very easy to do to, <coughs> to read votes with a, a, a computer. Uh, do you not read Rolling Stone? Greg Tallis, Okay, I think I think we got the gist of the we got we got a, the gist of it. There we go. That's a question. Why my, my why are you not considering? <laughs> my answer is yes. I read the Washington Post. <laughs> and I, I, I also read the Rolling Stone. And I I I, I would I I would just. I would just say it's important to uh, uphold uh, commonly accepted truths. And just because Donald Trump engages in conspiracy mongering and claims that there were millions of uh, illegal ballots cast for Hillary and that he actually won the popular vote, we should not engage in conspiracy mongering in the other direction and claim that he did not actually win the electoral college vote. And sadly, I think he did. But I think there is a legitimate concern about the sanctity of the electoral process now, as you mentioned, that so much, so much of it is going electronic. We saw the fact that that uh, the Russian government mounted an unprecedented assault on the integrity of our election in 2016, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that the Russians and other bad actors in the future are going to do more of the same, and they won't just be trying to affect public opinion via Facebook uh, or other media. They also have the potential, as you suggest, to actually undermine the integrity of, of the vote count, and I think we need to, the federal government needs to spend more money and resources and effort on safeguarding the balloting process because we know this is going to be a vulnerability that will be exploited in the future. But uh, you know, I just don't think there's any credible evidence to suggest that Donald Trump did not actually win uh, the 2016 election. Okay, we're going to the next person. Please, please. We're asked and asked and answered. It's just one question per person. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I'm not sure I buy the premise of your question. Actually, um, I mean, I think that if you, uh, 
it's a mistake to think about politics as electoral politics. In fact, I think that's one of the destructive tendencies in our culture currently and has been for a long time to think that politics is the process of casting votes uh, or more important uh, that political conversation is a conversation which you assert your view and someone else asserts their view and then you go to the ballot box and affirm those views, right? I think that political conversation is when we actually talk about how we're all inhabiting this country or this world. Um, and I don't see a distinction there between political and cultural strategies. Um, I can't answer the question of which cultural strategies are, are, are working. I think it's, it's too expansive. Uh, and as I already said, I, you know, I don't see a whole lot of really hopeful stuff happening. Max and Ian, do you have anything you want to add? Right. Next question. I'm missing Nancy McLean. I would like to ask you to uh, address, if you could, the topics of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and their role in this, Koch brothers, Mercers, and Citizens United. Um, I think that's um, a, a good question for you, Max, <laughs> um, and, and for you, Ian, as well, because we just, we just. Well, I, um, I mean, I, you know, I. Think but particularly the Koch brothers and Citizens United. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the I'm, I'm, okay, I'm going to I'm going to dissent a little bit from probably the prevailing orthodoxy in this room because I know there has been a lot of concern over the years about the Koch brothers and all this right wing money and so forth. But that's not how Donald Trump became president. His campaign actually was not the was not the one that had the most money, and it did certainly did not have the donor support to begin with, although he gradually acquired it. He basically got it because he figured out how to make use of free media. I mean, there was an estimate that he received something like $2 billion worth of, of, of free media uh, from the various cable and, and broadcast networks, and it wasn't, he didn't have this, this well-funded campaign apparatus. He basically, he hardly had any campaign advisors. He hardly, he ha hardly had any of the apparatus of a normal campaign, the things that we used to think were necessary to win the presidency. He's basically just a tremendous communicator or con man or salesman, however you want to do it. And, and he figured out how to make use of the broadcast media, of the internet, of all these media of communications. And that's how uh, he became uh, president. And then essentially, once he had won over the Republican Party and, and then the presidency, a lot of the big donors who were actually uh, had a lot of unease about him kind of fell into line. And I think this is, this is deeply unfortunate that now you have kind of the, and I think the donor class is not really even so important for Donald Trump because I'm not sure to what extent he actually needs them, but it is important for the Republican Congress. They do need that money to run their reelection campaigns. And I'm very dismayed to see a lot of my friends in the Republican side of the aisle, a lot of people who have given a lot of money to the Republican Party are still pretending right now that this is the same old Republican Party. One of the few who's, who actually is not is a fellow named uh, Seth Klarman, who is a big hedge fund guy in Boston and the biggest Republican donor in New England, and now he's giving his money exclusively to Democrats because he, perceived Republican, he perceives that Republicans are a threat to the rule of law and the basic institutions of our country, which I think is accurate. But what's striking to me is how very few other Republican donors have made a similar realization. Most of them basically made their, made their peace with the Republican Party and are willing to support Democrats who are essentially lapdogs for Trump. Uh, Republicans. Did I say Democrats? Sorry. Republicans who are lapdogs for, for Trump, uh, who are uh, lapdogs for Trump. I think that is, that is a, a, a very dismaying uh, development. Ian or Masha, do you want to add anything to that in terms of, I mean, we can say that the Koch brothers didn't play a role in the election of Trump, but certainly, and I think as Max alluded to this, played a role in the deterioration of Congress that we were talking about earlier. 
Um, you think of the number of Republican congressmen who were turfed out um, because they weren't compliant to the agenda um, that funders like the Koch brothers had. Um, any comments on any of that? Can I, can I use the esprit d'escalier and come back to the, for the question before? Because I think there is a bit more to be said about that, so the, the cultural politics, which is that um, I think it's very important that uh, in the workplace, um, men and women should be treat one another as equals. And I think it's very good to call men's behavior out uh, in this uh, respect and so on. There is a danger, though, that um, in a moment of political crisis, we, don't, we get distracted in um, non-electoral political directions and that we put too much energy um, into uh, col necessary cultural battles that but that could distract us from something that is equally necessary, if not more. And I think that we should learn from the mistake of the um, Occupy Wall Street movement, who, um, uh, unlike the Tea Party, in some ways were actively anti-political. I mean, the idea was that a movement um, with sufficient moral um, righteousness um, should not uh, pick sides, should not be involved in um, voting and political uh, activities, but should simply should not have leadership and so on. And, I th and it went nowhere. And I think because voting um, is the only way that we're going to get rid of Trump, um, all the energy that people have on the sort of center and left, or, or perhaps not even center left, anybody who cares about the political institutions of this country, um, should really concentrate on that. And to talk too much about cultural politics as, as though it were a substitute for that, I think would be a mistake. And the next question. So I'm just going to add to that question, if impeachment isn't the answer, that means we have to wait for at least two more years before we get a chance to do it. But um, Masha, you first, then Max. So I'd, I'd, I'll try to gi give a complicated answer to the, uh, what seems to be a fairly simple question, because I think there are several considerations here. There's, um, uh, I think that there's a great temptation, we've seen it uh, over the last 15 months, to use non-democratic mechanisms to save democracy. That's always a bad idea, right? Um, the, the Hamilton electors movement, if you recall, I thought was scary as hell, right? And uh, for about 15 minutes, very popular. Um, and you know, th that as, as um, I think Mark Joseph Stern wrote in, in Slate, that's a good idea only if we're never planning to have another presidential election ever again. 
Um, I don't think that the same is, uh, can be said of impeachment. Right? Impeachment I is a political procedure, but it's uh, it's one that it, that that is established, that uh, that has uh, been practiced before. I don't actually think it's likely to happen, but but I don't think that impeachment per se is a terrible idea. And I actually think it's wrong to think about whether it will backfire by turning Trump into a victim. Um, I mean, if he loses his bid for re-election, that will also backfire by turning him into a victim. In fact, if we follow that logic, we should just keep him in, in office for life. Um, lest it can happen here. There you lest, go. Lest he be turned into a victim and be able to mobilize a mass movement. I don't think, uh, I think it's dangerous to think politically like that. I think that there has to be a way to think about what the right thing is, and what the, uh, but because we can't know what the right thing is, at least think about what the wrong thing is, and when maybe it's not wrong. And I think it is wrong to think about sort of the, the consequences of, of legal and established political procedure. I, I strongly agree with that. In fact, I was having this conversation yesterday with a uh, Trump supporter, and believe it or not, there's one or two in New York, um, and he was actually trying to make the argument that it's all political, and I, I thought that was an offensive sentiment because no, it's not all political. Yes, people are political, but there is also a matter of right or wrong. And if you obstruct justice, if you undermine the basic tenets of our democracy, that is wrong. And people who are trying to hold you to account should do so regardless of what the political realities of the moment are. So I agree with Masha. Um, I think, but I mean, you're right, of course, that it could well backfire. And you know, certainly Trump will try to peddle the narrative that he's a victim. Uh, the extent to which he's going to be successful, I think, will depend on, on a very important point that we should not lose sight of, uh, which is the facts, the actual truth. Uh, and I think a lot of it is really going to, I mean, I would not advocate, if Democrats were in control of the House right now, I would not advocate going forward with an impeachment motion right now while Mueller is still gathering his evidence. I think you need to wait for Mueller to come back and see what he says, and if he, in fact, serves up a strong case, which... I think there's a very good chance that he will, that, that Trump did in fact obstruct justice or, or committed other offenses, then that creates the factual predicate to go forward with, with impeachment proceedings. And I think it should not be something that is seen as nakedly political, which in fact was the case with the Bill Clinton impeachment in the late 1990s. There was, I think there was kind of a sense in the country that, that, the, uh, that the Republican punishment did not fit the crime. There was kind of a sense, okay, he lied, but it was only about sex, so it wasn't that significant. Um, whereas I think in the case of Trump, you're talking about much more serious uh, uh, infractions that he has committed. I, th I believe he has committed, but we need to have the evidence of it in order to convince the American people that this is not just all about politics. And of course, there's going to be some section of the population that will ignore the facts, whatever the case may be. I mean, remember, even when Richard Nixon resigned, he still had majority support among the Republican Party. Uh, so. But there's a big difference between having 51% support and having 80 to 90% support, which is where Trump is with the Republican Party right now. And I think there is a fraction of even of Republican voters who are not diehard Trumpkins and who can be uh, who can be rested away if, in fact, uh, there is an extremely damning set of facts, which is presented by somebody like Mueller, which of course is the reason why Trump and his toadies in Congress are now trying to dirty up Mueller and suggest that. Uh, he is somehow a partisan or a Trump hater or all these other ridiculous things. But I think the good news is that outside of the fever swamps of the right, that strategy has not so far succeeded because Mueller is somebody who is so transparently ethical and, and committed to doing the right thing. 
We're no, we live in a topsy-turvy world in which I agree with on most things with Max Boot, and <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. Before we close, I just want to, uh, we don't have any more audience questions, but before we close... See, um, Trump has done some good things. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, the theme of this festival is not just resist, it's also reimagine, and I want to pick up what Masha had said about the lack of imagination about what comes next. And, and put that to all three of you one at a time, and that will be the final question for this. Um, and so I'm gonna try to keep talking now so you've got time to think about that. Um, uh, 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 about what comes next, what, what imaginative and creative powers you're all three writers can you bring to this moment we're at right now about what might come next? Ian. Well, I, I, that's not just a question, of course, for, for the Republicans. Uh, it's also a question for the Democrats. And it's something that is not only a, a, an issue in this country. And what's, what seems to have happened in the last few decades is that the original parties on the left who thought of themselves as progressives have gradually become, party, have become parties of the educated elite. And um, the right-wing parties have become um, spokesmen for the r relatively uneducated um, working classes. And so... Speaking for, for the center-left, the social democrats and the democrats in this country have to find some way of not relying entirely on highly educated um, people living in big cities um, and uh, standing up for minorities. They have to f find some ways of also managing to speak for the um, economically and socially or economically disadvantaged, and um, without simply going back to old Marxist formulas in, or the sort of Corbyn, uh, I think deeply reactionary uh, Corbyn um, tactics in Britain. So uh, there will be a, a realignment of some kind um, if democracy <laughs> survives, and um, this is, uh, we have neither the time nor do I have the not sufficient knowledge to give you a, a firm answer on what that would be. Thanks. Well, I mean, I should preface any remarks about what's going to come next that by noting that I have been uh, completely uh, wrong in, in, in predicting anything related to, to Trump and his phenomenon, since I never thought he would get this far. Um, I do think that uh, he is doing lasting damage to the country that will take decades to undo. I mean, just even something very simple, like Masha mentioned, the State Department, which is you know losing an entire generation of talent. That's going to take a long time to to regenerate. But I mean, that's like the least one of the smallest you know negative things that Trump is doing. I think he's doing long-term damage to race relations in this country. I think he's doing long-term damage to our standing in the world because if you're an American ally, how can you ever possibly trust America again? Even if you have a president who is more committed to a traditional internationalist foreign policy and free trade after Trump, you know you always know that these other sentiments are out there. And every four years, you could always wind up with a new Trump uh, in the White House. And so I think that you know America's standing uh, and and kind of the Pax Americana that we've tried to enforce and protect since 1945 uh, is wobbling right now and may not, in fact, survive. Um, I think that. You know, in terms of what's next in domestic politics, my fervent hope is that the Republican Party does not survive uh, because I think it has uh, shown itself to be morally and intellectually bankrupt. Uh, and I think, you know, if uh, you know if Trumpism is shown to be a loser at the ballot box, which is the 
the only thing that Republican leaders seem to care about is the electoral popularity of, of their movement. I mean, if in fact Trumpism is not the great boon to Republicanism that it was in, in 2016 when they won control of all three branches of government and most of the state houses, if they actually start paying an electoral price, I think you will see uh, you know, the rats scurrying off the sinking ship. And I think you may have a chance to, uh, to uh, what I certainly hope will happen is that the Republican Party will lose miserably in elections as far as the eye can see to such an extent that they will repent of, their, of, their, of the sins of their ways and decide that they can no longer exploit racial and ethnic grievances in order to win at the ballot box. That's what I hope will happen. Sadly, I'm not so confident it will happen because, again, uh, uh, you know, the actual developments, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it, of the last few years have sort of undercut my, my Pollyannish view of, of the United States. Matcha. So I'm, I'm interested um, in people who are actually trying to think about political issues in really different ways from the way that we're used to thinking about them. So I'm, you know, I'm interested in the mayor of Stockton, California, who's, uh, who's introducing a universal basic income experiment. I'm interested in, and there's actually a great article today in the Washington Post magazine uh, by Ian Volner on a group of, um, actually a couple, one is an architect, one is a political scientist, who are showing a project that envisions a cross-border San Diego-Tijuana city, um, which in some ways exists socially, but, um, but they're actually you know, they're envisioning it physically and architecturally. Um, I'm interested in a lot of uh, the, pol the hyper-local politics in Detroit, right, which is a real sort of post-democratic space and actually I think offers an understanding of what this country might look like post-Trump, uh, a, a city that is um, on the one hand being bought up by corporations that install private security firms and, uh, and, and, and you know, they basically have their own police and their own services because the public doesn't work at all and then there are also people who are trying to sort of create community level structures and um, and are really talking about again new ways of, of of living together. So that's that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in in terms of imagination. And on that note, I think we we'll, we need to close our session today. I want to thank all of our panelists, Ian Baruma, Max Boot, and Masha Gessen, all of whom have books on sale over here. If you would like to purchase one, please join me in thanking them.